I know you're into rocks. Are you into rocks? I've been collecting rocks since I was a little kid. I like crystals. Um... Of course kids are drawn to rocks because it's there's so many ways that they can have that sensory input with them. Picking up shiny rocks and showing them off and putting them in a bag never to be seen again. That's basically my experience with rocks. You know, who doesn't like crystals and agates and anything shiny? It, you know, it's like rockosophy, but in a podcast. It's rockcast podosophy. Let's do it. Okay, this would be episode five of rockcast podosophy. This is Rock Rat. We are sitting. I'm sitting here with the lovely, enchanting Megan Schindler in. The Rocket Bakery on Cedar. Cedar hey. location. Want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Than that? So, um, my name is Megan. Uh, my background is in psychology, and currently I work in counseling. Um, but Rock Rat, a couple weeks ago, you asked me what my experience was with like childhood development, and kind of your experiences and people talking about rock stories and how that originated in their childhood. And I'm not an expert in child psychology by any stretch of the imagination, um, but I have worked with kids and I have studied, you know, developmental theories and kind of how we grow into adults, kind of. And um, it just it made a lot of sense to me based on what I know about psychology of why people are fascinated with rocks starting in childhood and why that kind of originates and so you know we just kind of that idea has been festering in my mind since we had that very brief conversation and that was a good time and we were very we were actually close to this location weren't we uh we yeah. drove by yeah yeah interesting cool um so the background in this is that when I talk to people, a lot of the times they, when I ask about the rocks things, you know, oh, you got that rock, hey man, let's, let's connect over it, like, do you like rocks, tell me why you like rocks, let's share this bond, excuse me, over these pillars of the rockosophy mantle, and usually they're just like, I've loved rocks since I was a little kid, and then they tell me, like, this really pivotal story about you know, when I was a kid, like Kent in episode four, you know, they had a, like a geologist who had a pile of rocks that, you know, kids would go through the neighborhood and then they just keep doing it and they never give it up. I was in an informational interview with an individual who's an outreach environmental educator through the county, Pierce County, I think. And I had a notebook that Bristol, what's up Bristol Underwood, love you, um, gave me for Christmas last year. It had agates on it. Had like Lake Superior, I guess she got from a rock shop because she loves me and she knows the way to my heart. And um, you know, I was taking notes because I, that, you know, as one does, as one rock rat does, con- just compulsively writing things down. It's true. Yeah, and she <laughs> don't like me like that. And she was just like, "Oh, agates. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I used, I used to collect them when I was a kid, and I got all excited. I was like, could you still do that?'" And she was just like, "No, I." I mean, that's a lot of stuff because, you know, the anti-materialism thing yeah. that's really popular right now. And she's like, I don't need any more stuff. And also, like, when I was a kid, I did it. Yeah. And, you know, I became very embarrassed and was just like, oh, yeah, never mind. I'm not into rocks either. <laughs> so, and, like, I'll be honest. I mean, I feel like every, most kids, like, start collecting something or get really involved in something. But then when they grow older, they don't necessarily know that there's a culture built around that activity still or they don't 
stay connected to that community. And so it's like something that is connected to childhood, but they're supposed to grow out of. Or they get shamed for it as an adult. Yeah. Like, like I had a baseball card collection, but that's, it's not cool to be an adult with a baseball card collection. You know what I mean? And I feel like a lot of people feel the same way if they're not connected to the Rock County community. Yeah, and I think it, it also has a lot to do with the support, which is true for any hobby, but, like, my grandparents were both educators. My grandmother got her master's in education in the 50s, because that's how the Kaufman clan does, and, I mean, both of them were just super supportive of my rock hunting um, hobby. Like, I mean, even when they were, you know deteriorating due to just age you know it was still like the thing they remembered from my childhood was me picking through their like decorative gravel and being like can I keep that you know like look at this one and my grandmother like pretending to be very interested and being like yes or no we need that because it's part of the gravel like it's part of our landscaping Tori but um and I have a post about my stone soup experience but I should really sit down with my sister and we could talk about you know stone soup and how that was a pivotal part of our childhood but so like my grandpa the whole circling back to the point is that they were educators and they knew how important it was to foster these scientific interests so like my first mason tool my first rock pick was a gift from my grandparents with a copy of Geology Underfoot in Illinois and then my grandmother took me geode hunting in this creek that she knew from another educator friend of hers so like you have to foster it and that's not a culture that I grew up with I mean um, being someone who's first generation and, and coming from a world where first generation and what? first generation college students right um, or you know the first generation to have higher level degrees and but as someone who works in development and counseling um, you know we know how important it is to foster that curiosity and how it, it literally is what your brain needs you know is that exploration of the world when so like so one of the four pillars of rockosophy, I mean, four pillars, just for those of you who don't know, are rocks, philosophy, nature hobbies, and human connectivity. So when you say that, are we still talking about childhood development? Or are we talking about, like, in general? Because I took that as, like, every human right now needs that kind of, like, expression or attachment to their environment. I mean, I think that's an accurate statement, but when I said it, I was talking about childhood development okay. and like brain development is you your brain needs stimulation and so much of that comes from your external environment and through your senses especially in your like infancy and toddlerhood I mean that's why babies stick everything in their mouths you know it's to learn about the world so would it surprise you that my aunt Sharon and Uncle John have a photo somewhere of me like being like three and having a mouthful of rocks? Like they took a photo of it. No, no, no. I mean, that's psychologically. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I know what you're going with this. Um, do you? Do yeah. you? Tell me. Tell me where I'm going I with this. Like, I, feel, I feel like you're giving me a lead-in into developmental stage theories. I'm just sharing. Okay. I'm well, rockologically sharing my rockness. Rocks, rocks. So, like, in the field of psychology, we try to boil things down and explain them in stage theories, right? So, sure. um, 
Piaget, this guy named Piaget, he's French, obviously, um, has this stage theory of cognitive development. And there's four stages. So the sensory motor stage is you're learning about the world through your environment, through your body, right, through your senses. And that stage is, like, from, from birth, like, two or three. And, I mean, you think about it, every experience to a, a child that young is new. And so they're experiencing it for the first time. And, I mean, you have the most nerve endings and, like, neurons through your your hands. And there's a lot in your mouth. It's a very sensitive area. And so that's why kids stick everything in their mouth is because it's a lot of stimulation going to that brain because your brain is building so many neurons so rapidly and building so many connections that you're just like a sponge and you're soaking up as much as you can. Sponge brain, definitely a thing. Yeah, and so that's why like, it it doesn't surprise me that kids stick everything in their mouths and they stick rocks in their mouths. And rocks, like when you think about it, you've got got visual input, you've got visual stimulus because they're so different. They're pretty. What? They're pretty. They're pretty. And you've got textures uh, and you've got sizes. I mean, what more tangible thing with so much variety than rocks for, like, kids to have that sensory input. I mean, you told me that people taste rocks, and I think that's weird, but, like, people do it. That's, but, yeah, rock liquors. We're going to have an episode on that. Stay tuned. But, and so, like, of course kids are drawn to rocks because it's, there's so many ways that they can have that sensory input with them. And it's something they can pick up and take. Like, they can take ownership of it, and it's something that's easy to collect, and it's, it's accessible. It's very accessible. I did give my sister um, a little mini collection of samples for uh, nature stimulation stimulation boxes, sensory yeah yeah sensory boxes for the daycare that Cece goes to yeah yeah Um, for that very reason. I mean, when we when we work with people who experience neglect, often it's because they don't have access to those. Uh, different types of stimulation, especially physical stimulation. They do have a lot of interesting textures. Yeah, there's, like I said, texture, there's color, visual stuff. Maybe, depending on the environment you're you're in, there's smells involved, you know? Some rocks do have smells. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah. So, my theory about rocks and childhood which I was asking that spurred this conversation. Um, I just occurred to me that there's background music playing. I hope this interview is going to be able to be picked up by the recording device. Is that people have such a just infinitely colorful array of reasons for liking rocks that it struck me as something that is imprinted very early on. And I don't know a lot about psychology and I don't know a lot about human development because every time I try to relate animal development and behavioral stuff to behavioral science to humans I kept being told like humans are different Tori stop trying to do it um but like those really early experiences with your environment have a heavy influence on how you view the world which is I mean you know psychology 101 but it also has a lot to do with culture and like what you deem to be like quote unquote polite or rude or comfortable or uncomfortable like my sister showed me a chart they have for the extension at Pierce County that has like four quadrants about like emotional disclosure and like 
I don't know. It had it had a range of things where like in different cultures, you know, being blunt is very appropriate yeah. and, or it's very inappropriate. Yeah. yeah. And that has a lot to do with like child and whatever. So when it's people, social learning. Right. So when people tell me that like I mean I have very specific reasons for liking rocks. Rocks are sexy. Like that's great. But when someone tells me something that's totally out of left field and I don't understand it at all, I also understand it because I almost expect it to be something that is so different from my understanding of rocks and appreciation because I recognize that it's like a human thing. If it was like a sports team, like if it was, you know, the Zags, rated number two, I just want that on the record. Woo! Totally destroying. Um... It would make less sense if they appreciated the Zags for a completely, like, disconnected reason. I don't know. Well, and so, when you're that young, and you're learning about the world, and you're learning how to be an individual, one, you're going through emotional development, right? And so it makes sense that a lot of those early childhood experiences, just because of the fact that you're you're having them in that period of an emotional development, that kind of bond gets formed and they get connected to each other so that makes sense why people have an emotional connection to rocks if they have experiences with rocks in that kind of early childhood early adolescent time connect to the rocks or connect to people over rocks just connect to the experience of rocks so like the the example i always use is music oftentimes people have a really emotional connection to the music that they listen to when they were like a preteen because you're going through so much emotional development, and it's almost like it gets imprinted in your brain. You know, because the disco. Yeah, for me, it's Green Day. High five. Yep. And like, um, I briefly lost my train of thought. Imprinted. Yeah, I mean, emotional development. So, you know, when you're talking to these individuals and they're like, oh, yeah, like, it started in childhood or, or I did that as a kid, like, I'm sure they kind of experience, even if they don't show it to you, they experience a little bit of an emotion with that because it's connected to that experience and that memory. Um, it's kind of funny. So after we had that brief conversation, I started, I have a few people who love rocks in my life and where I work. And so I asked them, like, when did that start for you? And a lot of them also said childhood. Score. But, um, you know, another thing is also kids go through this stage that's where they're really egocentric. So um, oftentimes they will project human-like qualities onto inanimate objects. It's why Pet Rocks works. How is that? Oh, Pet Rocks? We're going to have a whole segment on Pet Rocks. But So, like, someone told me this story of how they felt bad for the rocks having to be outside in the rain and cold and snow. And so, like, if you are giving the world around you human emotions, like, that's an, that's also when you're forming empathy, right? But because for her, it was an experience with rocks. Like, who is this? Who is this? Yeah. I don't know if I'm at liberty to say. That's fine. I can interview your coworkers, too. <laughs> so, like, people especially kids view the world differently and they like I said they go through this period where they assume that everything around them has the same experience they do it's kind of why um, oftentimes like kids will think that cars are living beings or um, like want to dress up animals type thing and so I mean like I said I know someone who has that experience with rocks 
I should get their information <laughs> if you feel comfortable disclosing that after our interview. Um, yeah. What do you mean by egocentric? I'm just curious. They, uh, they don't understand that other people have a different perspective. Or they think that what they're experiencing is the same experience that other people have. Oh, right. So um, it's, it's just they're trying to build perspective, right? And they're having a hard time taking other people's perspective. And uh, also understanding that there are parts of the world that are not like that, you know, that, that rocks aren't living beings, uh, which some people might debate. I don't know. Uh, I certainly wouldn't debate that. There are probably people who would. Yeah. You know, I would like animism to talk to those type stuff, you know. Animism. The anthropomorphizing? No, like the the that nature there are spirits in nature. Oh, right. Spirits of the rocks, spirits of the trees, that kind of thing. Got it. But I mean, when you when you said like, you know, a lot of a lot of my conversations with people, they bring up early childhood and mm-hmm. connection to rocks. And in that way, it, it totally makes sense to me based on how we learn about the world at that part in our lives. Yeah, and the reasons that people have to like rocks tend to be when they are financially driven, I find it very confusing and I tend not to engage with those people just because we just have less in common. Like, we appreciate rocks for different reasons. Like, I'm not trying to talk to you about a sale. Mm-hmm. The stories that I get and the reasons, the rationality, when people really, like, see that we are having a conversation that they want to engage in is almost overwhelmingly emotional. And I would guess that the people who are really financially driven got into it later in life. That is also theory, yeah. Because when we're kids, we don't know about the the financial value of rocks, right? Yeah. You pick up a rock because it's cool-looking. Yeah. Instead of like, you know, you're not dealing rocks when you're a kid, you know. It's true. And so it makes sense that for the people who get into it young, their primary motivation for engaging in that hobby is emotional. It's memory. It's keeping on to that piece of your childhood and kind of having that be a golden thread through your life. Golden thread? A theme that kind of carries through. Or a reason that carries through, depend no matter where you are in your life. Like a motif in a book. Yeah, exactly. Like a motif. Yeah. We it's a counseling term. (laughs) So many of those. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're gonna take a brief break for a delightful sponsorship message. But when we come back, we will be circling back to a topic that has been tabled. If I'm correctly using all of these counselor terms. Jeez. Yeah, about rocks. So okay. give us just a second. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So. We are back from our delightful uh, sponsorship episode. Thank you all for sticking around. Um, fun fact, we are in... I mean, I'm, I'm in Spokane right now. If you check out the website. Uh, Spokane, Washington. Yeah, 99204. There are several rock shops in town because obviously the geology of the region is just wildly popular. And one of those rock shops in Spokane Valley is called Irv's. I'll have an interview with the one of the owners pretty soon. She's very, excuse me, very excited. But also, Meg was there. Mm-hmm. And... I'm actually the one who found the shop, so I'm totally going to take credit for that. Right. That's... Yeah. No, good job. Going to defer to you about your experience with the rock shop that you found and took us to. So, 
I don't have a lot of experience with rock shops. This is all like real new to me. But there's another shop in town um, that's more kind of commercially based and has a, a huge variety of other stuff. They don't specialize in rocks or crystals or anything like that. And so that's kind of what I was anticipating. And like going to herbs, they clearly care a lot about the hobby and engaging young people in the hobby and like really educational focus. And so they have kind of all the tools you need. It seems like they're really engaged in the community and like their motivation is clearly the hobby and the, the rock hounding community itself. And it's not solely commercial. And that just kind of struck me. And they just, they make it really family friendly. And um, it just, it felt like more accessible as a hobby than other things I've seen, you know? And it's kind of like, how was I not aware of this before kind of being dragged into the world through you? <laughs> so when you say accessible, so like I talk a lot about, I've actually gotten away from reporting on actually rock hounding as like by locale. Yeah. By location. Yeah. And, excuse me, talking, very excitable. Um, because, well, for lots of reasons, but I find the culture behind rock hounding, that was the reason I started this yeah. blog. That was the reason I started these conversations, because the storytelling is so rich. The culture runs so deeply within those people that I connect with. And there is a community understanding. And, you know, for some people it is about the money, but for most people it's not. It's about the shared experience. And I found that in the rock shop owner definitely the accessibility I think is an interesting word choice on your part because of the location like I, I write a lot about and I talk a lot about my travels to a location like actually getting there like I'm pretty sure I slightly damaged the axle on my jeep going to Crystal Mountain that one time I almost got stuck um, you know you just you got to have a rugged vehicle you know, the How to Camp with Strangers post that I ended up reading at Creative Colloquy. People found appreciative because it was humorous, but also it's very abstract, mm -hmm. you know. And that, to me, that the abstraction of the hobby, like, I did have to go into the middle of fucking nowhere yeah. to find these people. It does not seem accessible to me, but you were so enthused about it when we were there when I was talking to her. And you were like, I mean, it's just so accessible. It's so readily available. What do you mean by that? So, like... There's rocks everywhere. Yeah, I know. I know. There's, there's rocks everywhere. And when I say accessible, part of me is really thinking financially almost. Because, so, in my field, we pay a lot of attention to accessibility of services, right? I work in crisis counseling, and um, part of that comes from understanding people's lived experience and, and the way that that identities and intersectional identities affect people's experience. So experiences of people of color, of women, of, you know, ethnic and, and spiritual minorities, you know. And there are hobbies that are dominated by one demographic. So I like skiing. And uh, I went skydiving recently. And those kind of high adrenaline activities are not something that people of color engage in because their everyday lives are so risky. 
And so, like, for me, as a, as a highly educated white person, I need to go seek thrills in my life because I live a life that's safe and other people don't. And so when I think about the accessibility of, of rocks as a hobby, it's because you can... It's rocks are everywhere. You can do it, I think, with relatively little financial commitment. You know, I'm paying out a lot for lift tickets and ski gear, which not everyone can. And um, and at the end of the day, you get to, like, take stuff home, which is super cool. And it's something that you can do your whole life. You know, like we talked about with kids and their, you know, you can do it regardless of where you're at in life. Um, and I do think that maybe a downfall is that it might be hard for people who are differently abled or who have any disabilities to get access to like locations. But at the same time, like you've told me, the community is really based on sharing. And so that in a way also helps with accessibility. Yeah, gifts gifts are a huge part of that. Melissa and I, when we went out to that um, river location, and we had that gentleman come over and gave us some agate pieces and to seed us for good luck. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, he immediately told us about a place where we could find our own. And just having someone show you their rock collection, if they don't offer to give you part of it, or by part of it, I mean like a stone from it. I mean, I have been offered that so many times it would be strange to me almost when I'm showing someone my rock collection I always offer something and it's not something I do consciously I only notice that it's strange when someone absolutely refuses to accept it or makes a big deal of it it makes a big show because yeah it's accessibility is important and if you're never going to make it to that location you know you want a a little piece of it well and it seems like um people are interested in helping make it more accessible or they're trying to remove barriers from other people who want to get involved. I mean, when I went skydiving, part of that is like my physical condition and whether or not I can do it, but there's nothing that can mitigate or remove barriers if I wasn't physically able to do that, you know? Um, or skiing. They can do some adaptations with skiing, and they do, but as a general rule like you need to be able to physically do it and I imagine there are parts of of going out looking for rocks that are physically demanding but there are also places you can go and things you can do that are less so right Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah there are like you can go sift for sunstones and the biggest physical commitment that you have would be to be sitting or standing at the site or at which you are actually sifting through to find the sunstones yeah yeah, and like you've said, there's there's some nonprofits out there that are working with rock hounding. You know that I'm not entirely sure about. I think maybe I was talking about Syncopation Foundation, which oh, okay. is a dance. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a swing dance foundation. But um, a nonprofit rock group would be very important, I think, because it's so stimulating for kids, and that brings us back to our topic. For this episode, which is, I think it's really healthy for kids. Kids are always looking for ways to engage with nature. Mm-hmm. Nature is pivotal to their development. It's really healthy. Last Child in the Woods, I wrote a scathing essay commentary on that in college. And every year that goes by, I even posted that essay on this blog. Every year that goes by, it becomes a little bit more relevant. Because although it was heavily biased and very preachy, you know, kids 
they crave that connection to the earth and rocks are everywhere a rock like any human belongs wherever it falls wherever it lands that rock belongs there and that sense of connectivity is very important for people and the fact that like you can always replace whatever kind of rock that is like we get very emotionally attached to our rocks just like anything Mm -hmm. my favorite thing about collecting rocks especially the really beautiful ones is passing them on with the story and you know which is such a was such a lesson right what do you mean to be able to give something up and give it away especially if it brings someone else joy but it comes with the story. It comes with the experience. It, beca- yeah. it comes with that emotional childhood attachment. When you give a rock to somebody and they, they light up with almost a childhood level of excitement, they're like, really? Like, their voice It's like trading your... It's like trading... I'm, I'm connecting it to something that I can connect to. Yes, right? please. But it's like trading your really valuable, like, Pokemon cards yes, or baseball cards. absolutely. You know, it's the same thing. I mean, foundational to my work is empathy, Right, and I work with people, and I think empathy is absolutely foundation, especially to the world of counseling, obviously. But I mean, we talk about fostering empathy in young people and how that's so important. And in terms of nature, if you don't form a connection in nature or have experiences with nature, how can you form empathy for it? You know, how can you want to take care of it when you're older and become an ethical, ethical consumer and an ethical you know, resident of the earth. And so, hmm. you know, like if you don't, if you don't recognize the impact you have on earth by, you know, being taught and being shown and having experiences in nature, then, you know, you're going to drive a Hummer when you're 40. And that's, that's me getting on and off my soapbox in one yeah. sentence, you know? No, I, I appreciate the, uh, aerobic exercises that you make with your soapbox. Um, yeah, and I think that has a lot to do with, with... Well, no, no. That's wrong phraseology. I know a lot of biologists or conservationists in my field that also have geology degrees. Hmm. Like Dan Zekin from work. He's the fish biologist. He has a degree in geology. Aaron Turek from RTR. He has a degree in geology. And they say it with almost an apologetic... I mean, if either of you were listening, I love you, and you're amazing, and thank you for talking to me about rocks for so long. Specifically, Erin, your two girls, just, oh. Um, My experience with people who have degrees in geology is they don't work in conservation. Huh. Yeah. When I was in college, I was told that the only way to make money with a geology degree was to work in an oil company. That's That's what I was told. Right. And that's... That's most people. But I, right now, I work in conservation now. Mm -hmm. And so the two people that I know off the top of my head that have geology degrees are, of course, conservation biologists. Um, And Aaron Turek is a a geographer by trade, but he still has a degree in geology and he still really loves rocks. And a lot of people on the West Side have degrees in geology too. And they're also very ecologically minded. And I think it does, it's just one more way that connects you to your environment. I mean, thinking as foundational as tectonic plates and different geological realities, I mean, it is, they're they're really close cousins, right? They inform the whole picture. Geology? I mean, geology, biology, all of it. True. It's it's one more piece of the puzzle about the environment. 
yes, the breakdown of the rocks creates the soil, which creates the habitat for the animals and things. It's interesting for me, not being a resident here, and maybe it's interesting for you too, to kind of learn about the geology of the Spokane area, coming from Minnesota, where it just it didn't feel like we had interesting geology, and maybe it's because I was younger and didn't pay attention, but we were a huge region where granite and there's a lot of iron mining in Minnesota and it's just like you don't experience or don't appreciate diversity until you leave it. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. I mean, you don't see what you have until you see it from the other side of the yeah. grass lawn, I suppose. So like coming to the Spokane area where we have a lot of columnar basalt, I'm just like fascinated by it. And everyone else is like, oh yeah, you know, or if people are fascinated by granite, I'm like, oh yeah, I mean, grew up with it, you know, it's true in the mines. And we have, I mean, talking to you about agates, I mean, the yeah. Lake Superior agates are what I grew up with. Which is great. Yeah, people picking through, I guess, in the, in the gravel bars and things. Yeah. Lake Superior. Yeah, absolutely. Um, probably all the Great Lakes, actually. Mm-hmm. So, and yeah, the geology of the Midwest is unique in a lot of ways. The first uh, mineral mine, the first mineral rush in the United States was actually in Galena, Illinois, and that was for lead. Anybody from Illinois will tell you that when you own a property, quote-unquote own a property, you don't own the mineral rights. So you own what's above the ground, but you do not own what's below the ground. I remember when I was at Freedens, which is the church, UCC church in St. Charles, Illinois. Illinois? Missouri? I don't know where St. Charles is. Uh, it, anyway, there was a gentleman named Rufus who was a geologist and a delightful gentleman who's also very into jazz. He gave me a lot of uh, Too Hot to Handle CDs. I'll show them to you. They're really great handle uh, Christmas music tunes that oh, are nice. electronic, electronically synthesized. Um, he was very into jazz, and he was very into rocks. And one day, he and I and a childhood friend, Katie Bath and I, took a drive to some location. It took us 45 minutes to get there to see the outline, like the ridge line of a meteor strike wow. in Missouri. And it was like, I mean, it was so old that it created, like, a valley. Yeah. And he knew where it was. And if you know what you're looking for, you step back and you zoom out and the world is so much smaller and simultaneously richer than, you know, the media, than the technological overhaul, than the the capitalist regime that we are currently living under. <laughs> you know. I think that's important. And I think that's an adult way of looking at what is a childhood passion developing into an adult appreciation. You know, when you're a kid, you're looking for that tactile stimulation. You're putting those rocks in your mouth. You're saying, ooh, it's shiny. Oh, those colors. And then when you talk to the adults, like they're telling you that it comes from their childhood, but that the ones that retain it, they grow and develop into this, yeah, but I'm holding a piece of history. This fossil was a lie. Well, and you build on your knowledge, right? Like, you might really have a connection to a rock as a kid, and then you learn about the chemical makeup and the process of forming that rock, and, you know, maybe you learn about its financial value or rarity or the other properties of it, and it just... It enriches, it enriches your experience, but it comes, you have to have a base, you know, and part of that base is your emotional connection. 
Yeah. I would be interested to know if people with, like, botany-based hobbies experience a similar stimulation or other nature hobbies in general. Rock, rock hounding seems to have a very specific calling to people. Yeah. Do you observe that? In your roommates that are also into rocks and crystals for different reasons. Yeah, I, I don't know if I have enough experiences or I've heard enough stories to really to really determine that. I mean, so far it seems like it, yeah. I mean, to be honest, when I look at rock hounding, I think the motivation has to be emotional and deeply personal because... Yes. I don't know why someone else would go out into the middle of nowhere <laughs> digging through rocks. You know what I mean? And, like, that's fine. But the motivation there has to be internal and intrinsic and, like, a, close to your soul. Because it's so terrible. Not that it's terrible. It's just... <laughs> uh, it's intense. And it's very intentional. You know? Very true. Like, very we true. were... When I was talking about fishing, because I also like fishing... Part of the draw of it is that you don't know, you're not guaranteed to find what you're looking for. Yeah. And um, you only do that if you enjoy being out there, if you enjoy the looking, if you enjoy the process. You know, if you're looking for a financial return, it might not, it might not meet your needs. (laughs) Very true. So saying it's the journey, not the destination. That always seems to be the case. That always seems to be the case. Great. It's all in the process. Certainly, and it is a developing process. Yeah. So, do you have any final thoughts about anything rockological? I think... Any braingasms to share with your listeners today? I don't know if I have any braingasms, but, like, I think there's so much from what I have observed already about rock hounding as a hobby that's like healthy for a person yes you know like it's healthy to form those connections with other people in the community it's healthy to get out in nature it's healthy to spend some time not at work or not trying to make money you know just like get out there and live your life and take some time to enjoy yourself with some something that other people might seem frivolous but for the individual it holds a lot of deeply personal meaning cool is that good enough no that's that's <laughs> perfect that's great okay well would you like to take us out or you can take us out i don't yeah. know what i'm doing here that's great okay well that has this has been episode five of rock cast podosophy an outbranch of rockosophy i encourage you all to keep listening and hit me up with your rock tales so that we can keep the conversation going. Have a good one. Bye.